0: right welcome tim how are you doing my friend hello sean i'm doing great man you are You still down in florida
1: yes sir i am i'm in uh i think we're pushing about 82 degrees here this morning
0: all right well wow. afternoon, it's it's, one o'clock sorry it's, it's quite cold in london so the viewers you know i'm really excited about your story it's right up my street all this stuff can you just tell the viewers a little bit about you before we go over it more slowly um, yeah, actually, uh, of course, my name is Tim McBride,
1: my uh, nickname uh, that was given to me back in my earlier years is Saltwater Cowboy, which I have right there, actually, and it's also the name of the book that I've written, Saltwater Cowboy, The Rise and Fall of, a, of an Empire, and it's actually a firsthand telling and accounting, and it's not a um, know a boring statistical romp through the war on you know the war on uh weed and you know other drugs and and such it's more of a first-hand telling of me sitting there taking you through my experience you know with this industry growing up uh and growing up i was you know there was never anything ever dysfunctional you know with the family group and the way i grew up that you know that drove me to to become an outlaw it's just you know my life turned out to be a bit of a, a forest gump of a tripping over one thing into the next and there I was, you know.
0: <laughs> so so what was it like for you before you got involved in the green?
1: Uh just life is life is you know, usual for a, you know, a young, a late late teens, early twenties guy. I was uh uh when I was nineteen, nineteen twenty, uh I had um the fortunate uh um, opportunity to work for a uh, one of the uh, what was called the Rat Pack back in the early days of uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and as such I had a job working for Sammy Davis Jr. in Hollywood with my cousin Hogan who drove his tour bus. Uh, another story for another time but uh, I got you know the Hollywood thing just kind of went, bubble bursted for me once I understood how it all worked and you know, the, you know, television, you know, was so unreal to me, you know, at that point. I headed back to uh, back home where um I had done four years in high school in southern Wisconsin, uh, um, having moved there as my father was uh, finishing up with the 82nd Airborne in North Carolina uh, in the Army, and he went and took a sales position. My back in Wisconsin after L.A. and my next door neighbor called me, at, uh, my best friend and said, hey, I'm moving to Florida tomorrow. I'm going to go work on a fishing boat down in Florida my sister and brother-in-law run the only fish house on the island. And his brother-in-law was actually one of the natives you know that lived there all his life. So he said, you want to (laughs) go? I just I didn't give it a second thought. man. I said, yeah, I I packed all my stuff in my Cobra, my Mustang. And, you know, off late two days later, we ended up on the very dead end of Highway 29 on this little 129 acre island in paradise (laughs) called Chokoloskee. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, didn't go down there with any aspirations of getting involved in anything that I wound up getting involved in. I just went down there, as you know, because it was another opportunity, something that I didn't want to pass up. And I'd always been that type of person whereby if something came along and it sounded good to me, rather than kick myself in the butt later on saying, I wish that I'd have done that, I just did it, you know, that sort of thing. And you know, one thing I do, another, and here I am. I'm helping my uh, his sister and brother-in-law build their new home while he's getting a job on the boat, working <clears throat> by what I mean, stone crab fishing. And stone crabs are a very um, uh, lucrative business, and it's also a delicacy that's found only in these southern waters. And they're sold all around the world, you know, at, at astronomical prices. But um, uh, this this particular boat had us, uh, has a captain and two crew a first mate and a second mate that work on the stern, pulling these stone crab traps every day. So I was working building this house and the captain of the boat that my buddy had gotten the job working on, decided he wanted to get back into the, you know, the weed hauling business. <laughs> And he didn't trust the guy that was on there with my my buddy Mark, he was this guy was from Michigan and Captain Billy really didn't know this guy at all or anything about him, but they knew us, they knew where we were from, they knew where we came from, where we grew up, you know, and all about us so there was no, you know, subterfuge as far as law enforcement intrusion on our part and everybody knew that so we were accepted right into the family. And the uh, captain decided that he needed a new guy and it might as well be me so they worked this guy, you know, hard for about a week and, and he wound up quitting because, you know, I mean, pulling stone crabs is, uh, I mean, it'll make a man out of you, I mean, in a hurry, and most guys usually do it one maybe two seasons and they quit because it's just such, you know, backbreaking work. work. Um, So I said, okay, they got me on board, and they and they imparted the story, you know, the the procedure about how it works. You get on the boat early in the morning, you know, say three, four o'clock in the morning, depending on where you have to go, because we've got six hundred traps to pull a day. We have six thousand of these things, and they're probably twenty-six inches by twenty-seven inches by by about twenty-eight inches tall. So they're you know a bit rectangular and tall but the bottom six inches of the trap is concrete so when you push it back into the water it lands flat on the bottom like it should so the crabs can crawl through the funnel on top well as i'm pulling my trap my neck the guy next to me is pushing his i clear mine i bait it i clean it i fix it i repair it whatever i need to do while he pulls his and when he pulls his i push mine back over so we always leave one where we take one, and and 300 traps one direction for about 17 to 20 miles. Then we stop and have lunch, skip over about 50-75 yards, and pull back 300 the other way, so we're not twice as far away from where we started. This is how it was imparted to me, and how the work was done. So I said, "Yeah, okay, you know, but, you know, no problem. I'm in." So, you know, I got on the boat about three o'clock next morning and the, the bunks that we sleep in are in the wheelhouse. As soon as we cast off, um, you know, we can go right into the bunk cause we've got several hours, you know, to get to where we need to be, where these traps are. So we can, you know, when it just, as soon as it becomes light out, we can pull that first trap. And I mean, we got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of, stuff, a lot of work to do on this boat and I get out there and you know, I wake up and the sun's up and I'm thinking, well, you know, I, in my mind, on my inner monologue, I'm going, well, they said we were starting before the sun gave up. I mean, you know, so I leaned over and I looked down the bunk and there's Captain Billy sitting right there in his chair. And he's, <laughs> he's got this mm-hmm. big grin on his face at me. He goes, Timmy, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pull traps today. But he says, we're going to hang out here all day and party and, you know, and, and just swim and goof off until this, you know, later on this afternoon, we're going to unload a, uh, uh, a weed butt from Columbia. <laughs>
0: I said, oh, Ash, 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 Ash is, Tim, Ash has asked me to remind you to say green and white instead of the other words.
1: Green, yeah, the green, yeah, to pick up a load of green. green, green and I said, green, OK, man, yeah. you know, because um, they knew me. And it was a bit of a tongue in cheek thing for them because they knew I'd be OK with it. So my first time ever working on this boat, I didn't see a stone crab trap. I saw 15 tons of, of green. 30,000 pounds of green is what we put on our boat and brought it in that night. Now, when we bring it in, we pull up to the shoreline and kill our engines. And then from the, from the 10,000 islands, if you've ever seen an overview, if you just Google uh, 10,000 islands, Everglades, it shows you a nice overview of this wonderfully beautiful labyrinth of islands, literally 10,000 of them that Mother Nature saw fit to build, you know, right in our backyard. And this is where we play. We run these islands and back and forth and everywhere. And if we get in there, you're not catching us. You're not finding us. There's no way. So all these little boats would come out from the islands, about two guys on each boat, and these are shallow drafting boats. Usually have two twin two thirty-five Evinrude outboard motors on them, and they can go as long as that prop can go through the water. That boat will go through the water, and they're putting you know anywhere from thirty to forty, you know, seventy pound bricks of green on each boat, and they're making trips back and forth through a pass that we've created on our own to one of our, or two of our buddies' houses on the islands that we've literally taken all the furniture out of and start stacking the houses full from the back to the front. And we go offshore and clean up and you know, that's our jobs over with. So the next morning, we you know we pull a few traps and come in with a little bit of catch. And that next evening, you know we're hanging out and around. And I get up and I get ready to go. I get on the boat again at like three thirty again that next morning. And I wake up and one more time the sun's up. Now this is my second day working on this crab boat, and I didn't see even a crab trap the second day. We went off and got twenty-two tons of green that next night. <laughs> and so my first two nights working on this boat. We moved all these, you know, these tons of green into the United States through Everglades in this little tiny island, and I got paid five thousand dollars for each night. That was what considered rookie pay because the captain was kind of, you know, testing us out. Once he understood he had a crew that was willing and able to do the work, now I'm getting paid according to the size of the loads, and the loads from that point started getting bigger. They went from 22 tons to 30 tons, to 40 tons. There's a chapter in my book where I wrote 28 nights in a row our crews worked to the tune of 1.6 million pounds of green went across that little island into Miami. And this is the story that I talk about, 40, almost 40 years and three generations of of uh, of, of, of green haulers is what well, we you make, call you, you make it sound movie.
0: so You make it sound so easy, Tim. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, well, there was, you know, um, in the book, you know, it's written in, in my voice, you know.
1: It's written with, under what's called the Chicago Manual of Style, which is, you know, uh, a lot more grammatically forgiving than the English style or the American style of literature or writing. And it allowed me to tell the story in my voice. So there's a lot of, there's a bit of, there's a lot of joviality because I'm that kind of guy, you know. Plus, we're a bunch of kids. You know, I mean, there's a town, a little town of just under 500 people, and half of the population of the town was involved in doing this. Simply because if we do 22 tons and 30 tons and in, at, at maybe 40 tons, it won't be just our one boat. It might be two or three other boats going along with us to bring the entire load in. You can only work guys maybe two or three nights, and then, or, or you kill them. So we have to take a couple of days off and then a couple of the other boats in town and crews take over. I mean, the whole town was doing this and we we're actually spreading the work around. Okay, Jimmy, you take off, Teddy, you take off, Tommy, you take off and let these guys work tonight and then tomorrow night or the next night, then you guys can come back in again. You know, so everybody was getting a piece of this thing. And um, it was just those size of loads that we were involved in working with as kids. That's all we knew. you know. That's all we knew as kids, you know, 20, 30 ton loads. It was just like, it was what we expected, but um, we were never afraid of it. I was never afraid of it. Neither were any of the guys that I worked with because, you know, when you think about it uh, in all reality, first of all, the reason why us younger kids are doing all the work is because the grown-ups aren't out there humping these 70 and 80 pound bales of green, you know, and moving them. 800 to 1000 of them twice a night <laughs> they're not doing this man the younger kids are doing this we're all breaking our backs you know but like i said after that night now my job, now my work is getting i'm getting paid according to the size of the loads and we're working two and three and sometimes four nights a week now and i'm averaging anywhere between 50 and 75000 dollars a night and I'm earning on one hundred and fifty two hundred thousand dollars a week, and I just turned twenty one years old. You know, that's just how that's just how I'm that's how I grew up.
0: You know, where was the money going? Um, that's uh, a.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: that's another. I mean, that's, this is
1: the this is a story that that's really hard to tell in an hour. You know, obviously. Yeah. So, um, I'll 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 give you the condensed version, if if I can, you know, we were taught as kids, you know, as, as youngsters that we were um, by the older generations. Now I'm talking, I was considered by the United States government to be what would they call a third generation uh, green smuggler. And what that meant was my uncles and dads and fathers and older cousins of myself and the people that I grew up with, they were the second generation. The first generation were their uncles and fathers and our grandpas and everybody that grew up with them. So this goes down three generations um, and nearly 40 years of running the, the these southern waters here around Florida and in the, in the archipelago of the Keys and the Caribbean with literally with impunity because we were bringing in these enormous amounts into a little tiny 129 acre island in Everglades and who would have ever had a clue, you know? But the uh, the most interesting thing about it was, um, them were the older the adults. In, in in answer to your question, were always concerned about the money spending because if you got stupid and started buying, you know, Porsches and you know, building crazy homes or just you know, stupid things, then you stuck out. Then you just didn't work anymore. That was the end of it. You just I mean, you're just done. You're you're a liability now. You're not an asset. So they were very good at instructing us on ways of how to spend money and not have anything to show for it. And then after a while, it became a game of us trying to figure out ways of how to spend all this cash and not have anything to show for it. We were doing some outrageous things, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just I think the most amount of money we could get rid of at any one time would be. For instance, myself and four of my buddies went to South Beach. We went from Miami to South Beach in a four day weekend. We each took two hundred thousand dollars apiece. We took a million dollars between us with the sole intention of taking on the bar tab of every club we went into and and with the the other sole purpose was to try to come home with just enough money for gas <laughs> 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 just to get rid of the cash. you know what I mean just. Get rid of it because i mean
0: mm-hmm.
1: i was you know the way it works is if we bring a load in and this is the way i worked when i started taking over the cruise we'll handle two stones at one in one toss here when i started taking over the cruise i learned that if i'm bringing in your load and you owe me 25 million dollars and my crew for having brought that in um which is usually you know i charge 175 a pound and i can go to any corner of the Caribbean where there's green being grown and I can buy it for you and I can buy as much as you want because those those connections were inherited to me by the other generations who they worked with as families themselves. So these were all families and generational families. this were not cartels. you know never once in my growing up, in all of those years did I ever see a gun ever, never. And that kind of makes sense to me in retrospect because I'm thinking what parent in their right mind, would put their children out there unloading freighters offshore from boats from all of the corner of the Caribbean if they thought it was dangerous. Well, it wasn't. So that's why as kids were put to work out there. People have to understand and realize that at that level of, of, of where we were working, there is no violence. There, ha- there, there, there doesn't need to be. If I can go anywhere in the Caribbean and for $10 a pound buy you all the green that you want, And by the time I get it into United States waters, it becomes anywhere between 500 and $750 a pound. I just turn, say if I put $300,000 and I bought 30,000 pounds of green, and I get it to you within eight days, which is typically the voyage between, you know, from Columbia to South Florida, you know, and anywhere else in the the Caribbean, sometimes shorter than that, I can turn that $300,000 into 15 million minus my fee for a job that size, which is around 5 million, and you just made $10 million in eight days off of $300,000. And do you think these guys are shooting at me? <laughs> Man, they can't give me money fast enough to go back. You know? wow. you know, go back, go back, go back, go back. So I wound up flying down to Colombia my first job ever doing this on my own and it was very serendipitous and a very particular sequence of events needed to take place you know throughout this entire story for me to be able to even be sitting here talking to you because uh, of what you wrote as the introduction to the story 160 years mandatory to life well that's exactly what they slapped on me when they finally caught me you know but that's you know i mean you have to read the book really i don't know i know i have some friends in the uk that have gotten the book um i don't know if it's it's being authored offered in france and italy and spain and you know the netherlands and other places through uh, amazon i know this much but um all this is explained to you in the book you know about how i how i managed to take over and it was very you know just being the, the the right person in the right place at the right time is exactly how this happened for me um and um you know so the spending part of it we got past the The mechanics of it is, is simply a boat like ours, and I've sent you, you know, I've sent um, some pictures along to Ash that you might go ahead and integrate at some point. Um, a picture of the boat that we used that, that has literally hauled millions of pounds of green into the United States. With a picture of me and my partner on the back of the boat, um, and how ultimately after. Two federal operations in 1983 and then again in 1984 that involved over 250 plus federal agents from every branch of law enforcement across the country came down onto that little little town and, and started to affect arrests. Well, the intelligence was so good of the first and second generations because they had congressmen and senators and, and judges on their payrolls. I mean, these people were, you know, they were very clever at what they did. And it was a bit of a failure because they knew through the intelligence two weeks before that operation happened that they were coming. So when they showed up, it was like, you know, there was nobody around, you know, it was a big flop. So they a year to the day, just about he came again, Operation Everglades 2. 250 plus federal agents again from every branch of law enforcement descended on that little town. And this time the growing up said, Oh, okay. They threw their hands up in the air and said, Oh well, they're. You know, they're not gonna stop. So they they all sat out on their front porches at two in the morning smoking cigarettes, waiting for the show to start, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and here they came.
0: Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK Amazon US Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press Cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers.
1: You know, and the second time around in 1984, Life Magazine was one of the reporting, you know, magazines that came to the island. And there were more actually more reporters. It was it was written. There were more reporters on the island than there were people there to be arrested. <laughs> and it was like a Keystone cop sort of an affair because there's no stoplights on the island. It's just a couple of stop signs. I mean, its it's trailers mostly because, I mean, we're just we're just fishermen. We're just regular, ordinary old people, you know. Nothing extraordinary, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So they had gotten the most of the key players, the older adults, the visible people that were, you know, working us kids, and you know, and and they had no idea the scope and the magnitude of of which it was they were getting involved in the government. Did they? They were really absolutely clueless. So they got a hold of the, you know, the main people, in particular the five Daniel's brothers, whose kids I grew up with. Now, they're standing in front of the magistrate in Miami, and they're getting their, you know, they're being arraigned, or, and, um, or they're being sentenced, and the judge is reading out their list of seizures. Just to give you a, a bit of an example of what these guys were involved in and how I took, and, and what I wound up taking over. They discovered a, uh, Antilles, a Netherlands Antilles holding company in the Caribbean worth about $8 million in an untold number of properties. Here in the United States, they had timeshares, hotels, motels, houses, um, time, you know, rental apartments, they had houses, cars, trucks, boats, airplanes. And and Daryl, one of the brothers, had owned several airplanes that he never had a license to fly. And he just had the money to buy them and, and to pay a guy to show him how to fly. They, you know, all these seizures. Plus, they seized 580,000 pounds of green. Now, who in the world has over a half a million pounds of green laying around? Well we do <laughs> you know so the judge literally and i'm reading from the youngest brother craig of the five brothers he's my still today i mean they're all my dear friends but craig the youngest brother is my dearest friend we talk almost you know a couple times a, a month even uh, to this day and he's telling me and i'm reading from the transcripts this magistrate is looking at all five brothers line up in front of him and he says that you know, uh, you know, he tells them all. And he addresses me. He says, you know, gentlemen. He says, I have absolutely no idea how to sentence people like you. <laughs> he says, I have never in my life come across anything such as this. And you know, at that time, the judges and the magistrates had discretionary had discretionary measures that they could use by which to sentence you. They could take into account a lot of different things. You know, you've never been involved in a crime. You've never been arrested. You have a family, blah, 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 all that crap. Well, when it came to Craig, the youngest, this is his second time for this kind of thing, and the judge warned him twice. He says, you know, this is your second time, Mr. Daniels. He goes, yes, sir, yes, sir, I understand. So the first, the four brothers, magistrate shuffling through his papers, the four brothers, and he he looks over at him and he goes, 36 months. 36 months for flooding North America with green, right? So they come to Craig, the guy's pointing at Craig, and he goes, okay, Mr. Daniels, well, I'm going to remind you one more time. He says, this is your second time around. Yes, sir. He's very humble. Yes, sir. And the judge again, you know, you kind of hear the papers rustling, and the judge kind of looks over at me, he takes his glasses off one more time. He says, you know what? I cannot stress the fact, you know, the simple fact that I have, once again, I'm no idea what to do with a guy like you, you know. And he says, and he looks him straight in the eye. And this is the funny part and he says, and he asks Craig himself, he says, Craig, he says, Mr. Daniels, does five years sound like a long time to you? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, oh, yes, sir, that sounds like a hell of a long time. <laughs> five years, the guy gives him, he's out in like two and a half, you
0: know. <laughs> oh, my goodness,
1: but. Those sentences having been given and we're not having the desired effect, obviously, so I'm skipping, I'm doing the fast-forward thing here, skipping back to me having taken over and it was very serendipitously how that happened. Now, that one night we had brought in when we worked 28 nights in a row to the tune of 1.6 million pounds was my rough calculation. One of those nights was a 55-ton night, 110,000 pounds of green came on that island and it we had it in about six houses full. I mean, slap full, back to front, bathroom, living room, kitchen, dining room, anywhere you could stick one of these bales of green, it was there. And they're running it that next day. And I'm off now. I'm taking a break. We've got two days' break. So I walk over to one of the houses that's you know that they're loading up and the and how it works is while the houses are being loaded that night the vehicles the cars the trucks the vans the you know the broncos with blacked out windows and anything that you can put a bale of this green in they were working that's how the rest of the town even the women get involved as drivers they would drive out to the houses that's being loaded load their vehicles there drive them into town that night and park them in the driveway or in the front yard in plain sight and just leave them there overnight <laughs> till the next day and then the next day what didn't get loaded preloaded they would come to the house and we would load them and everybody working and it takes an average to you know on a job of say you know 25 tons just 25 tons it takes an average of 50 60 people to make the job work there's so many different moving parts there's the people go to columbia there's the boats like me that goes off to unload the mothership there's the boats that come to us there's the house there's the bail handlers there's the drivers i mean it's the whole mechanism so they take this during the day we bring in it in at night from sundown to sunup is when we have our opportunity our opportunity to get it from offshore and onto that island and tucked away and out of sight that's when the people start showing up and they open the trunk so they open the back doors of the vans and their guys are thrown and then they're loading and they shut the door and bang it kick it on the bumper and off they go now everybody involved and we must have had 200 of these two meter radios that have a five digit combination on top that in those days were virtually unscannable. So everybody has communication, even the drivers. And they've got a 120 mile trip to make across Miami from Everglades. And they're generally uh, directed to a plaza or a strip mall or someplace in in, uh, West Miami, someplace in Kendall usually uh, off, off of Chrome Avenue and they would pull into the parking lot and we would have another guy that belonged on our team with the cuban partners who actually actually owned the stuff pointing that's our car that's our truck that's our van and they would get our guys would get out their guy would get in it go empty it and bring it back empty our guy would get in it and go make another load if there was time this is what the government now describes as a dead drop we invented that process because that was also a buffer between Cubans in Miami and us in Everglades. Cubans in Miami don't know where it's coming from. Guys in Miami don't know where it's going, or everybody's don't know where it's going to in Miami. So there's always that buffer. Nobody ever saw one another. But along with that drive, they had a safety valve involved with all these drivers, no less than 10 or 12 spotters, we call them, were paid $5,000 a day. And all they had to do was drive to that plaza and back all day in staggered positions, and staggered forms where somebody got stopped. They were simply instructed to wait till whoever stopped you gets between your vehicle and theirs and you throw that thing that now has two maybe maybe a thousand two thousand pounds more heavy than it normally is throw it in reverse and clock that guy as hard as you can hit him and he's not going anywhere but you're not going to outrun the radio so you know by everybody already knows I'm getting stopped you know that's the first thing you do say oh it's all over and you Cream this guy and take off, but all you need to do is you're not going to outrun the radios. You just get out of sight of him, and one of the spotters will pick you up. Now the thing about that is let them have it. The thing about letting them have it, whether it's a boat or a car or a vessel we use offshore, the owners of those cars, boats, and uh, offshore vessels are never on the boat. So if anything ever happens or anything looks like it's going to happen, it's like (laughs) games up. They call the owner of that vehicle, and he he calls the law right away and says, "Hey, I just looked out in the driveway, Mike." truck's gone or my car's
0: gone (laughs) you know somebody
1: stole my crap or my boat or whatever the case may be and ultimately they're relieved of any responsibility for which that's been involved in and they'll get it back that's one of the little tricks of the (laughs) tray now we're working offshore with these I mean these multi-ton loads and that boat is like way down man it's you know we've had 40,000 pounds on the on our boat alone one time and it was barely moving. And we have riding alongside of us what's called a chase boat. This is an offshore, very powerful boat that can do 80 miles an hour before your butt can even hit the seat. So the captain's busy in the wheelhouse after my partner and I get the boat loaded, you know, and stacked and however we need to do it. Captain goes busy on the way into shore, he's dialed in, he's on the radar, he's on the radar, he's doing his job, you know, and we have two or three boats working with us. There's never any communicating going on between the vessels, we're running dark. We communicated by way of what was called a Polaris scanner, which were a a very interesting piece of equipment that we had, uh, I had actually a connection to the Everglades National Park. One of the park rangers was actually one of my crewmen. On a job, he introduced me to who the government was buying their counter-surveillance technology from in Miami, and I was buying better, if not the same, if not better equipment than they were buying because I had a bigger war chest than the government did. So, um, we get off of that boat if it looked like somebody's coming down. We got a fifty-mile radius on the radar, and it can be shrunk down to twenty-five, to twenty, to fifteen as that vessel gets or that target gets close to us, where it looks like it's it may be coming. We just get off onto that go fast boat and take off into the night let them have it. Because Captain Billy did on the boat as dad did. <laughs> so we just called dad and say, hey dad, dad's up. So dad called the cops and say, somebody stole my boat.
0: And he'll get it back.
1: But that never happened. We, we never lost a load. And I never lost a load. You know, just because of the sophistication and and the you know the way that we were doing this for and and got so good at doing this over the over the years that you know people just had no clue that that amount of material was being taken down. One road in that place, one road into Everglades and one road out. And then from there, there's only one road to Miami. So I had a couple of uh, U.S. Treasury agents ask me one day when I after I had gotten indicted with that 160 years mandatory life and, and $16 million in fines from four indictments, they wanted to question me. And I wasn't about to cooperate because not only, you know, throughout the entire decades or so that I had been doing this, did I ever see a gun. Only once did I ever see a gun, and that was the first time I went to Columbia and met the boss the guy I bought millions of pounds from when I took over. Um, and I'm explaining to these treasury agents about, you know, do you understand the geography of Everglades City? Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, how many roads in there and out of there are there? Well, there's one. <laughs> yeah, there's one. <laughs> there's one road. Now, how many roads are there from there directly to Miami? There's one. Yeah, there's one, U.S. 41. And I asked him point blank. I looked him both right in the eye and I said, well, how do you think we got those millions of pounds of green to Miami? It didn't go over there on the backs of pelicans and, and damn porpoises. That's for sure, man. It went right down that one road. And nine times out of ten, my people are waving as They're going by because we were masters of hide in plain sight. The stuff's going to Miami during the day thousands of pounds of
0: it. You know, who would ever know? Who would ever suspect? I mean they never did. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, Tim, you've got to tell us the story of meeting the big man in Colombia.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Um I had gone down there uh this is my first trip to Colombia that I was working for with my two Cuban partners, Calito and Leo. Um After I had taken, um, I had the opportunity when we were doing that 50, that that 28 night run, that 55 tons, I was given the job prior, a couple days prior with my buddy Jimmy to go into this brand new, brand new 40 foot Winnebago. It had 125 miles on it and strip everything out of it from the windows down. I mean, he said, and Daryl, one of the bosses, you know, the brothers, he says, leave the, you know, the cabinets and the curtains and everything above, leave all that there tear out everything you can tear out down below we even took the captain's chairs out in the seats and they put airbags in the springs so when they put 11 and a half thousand pounds of green in this thing they even had to pull a bale out so the guy could you know sit down between them and drive this thing because there wasn't any seats in it (laughs) (laughs) so i go over like a dummy having just done 55 tons i made seventy-five thousand dollars that night and daryl catches me out of the corner of his eye because I foolishly went over to see how the house was you know how how it was going he said "Timmy, I'd like you to do me a favor if you would please he said I'd like you to drive this Winnebago to Miami because it can't go to the drop spot can't go to the plaza or anything like that because I mean you get within 40 feet of this thing and you can smell it right so it had to go right to the house Nobody on any of the crews had ever been to one of these stash houses, except for the adults, the guys that were putting this, you know, putting all the things together. That's why he says, I need somebody that I can trust. I need you to drive this to that house, stay there for the day until the load's done coming in and drive a car full of money back for me that next evening. And I reluctantly, just because of who he was, I said yeah, okay. So I'm the dumbass that gets to sit down between this thing, and I'm driving this behemoth. Well, long story short, I meet the guys in Miami who are putting all the making, doing all this work. Now come these operations. I told you, operation Everglades one and two, all those mucks that knew what was going on and putting all the work together went to prison they've got nailed and went you know they're doing their thing and like this well i get a knock on my door one day from this guy named jorge that i met at that house and he says took him a month to find me all they knew was timmy and they knew this my face you know with Naples and everglades and the surrounding area isn't that big and it took them a month they found me i get a knock on my door timmy we got work to do, brother, it's backing up. Can you do this? And I just thought I would blurt it out, heck yeah. You know, just like that. So I went back. Yes. The infrastructure was still there. Everybody that was actually doing the work, the kids and everybody that I worked with, we were still there. The adults are the ones that went, you know. They didn't have a clue that, you know, the other half of the town and, and all the, mostly all the adult kids were involved in it. And I put everybody back to work. But what the guys in in Miami wanted for the first go round, though, it was like a test run, was me to go to Columbia, purchase it, check it out myself, go get it and bring it back to them. So I fly to Columbia on a jet, a a corporate Lear that ultimately Carlito and Leo and I all owned, the three of us owned it. Five hour flight to Columbia, I took my buddy Ruben with me the first time because I need a translator, he's speaking Spanish. We get to the guy's, the boss's house. That's all the name you'll ever get out of me is the boss. And it's a beautiful mansion that was inherited to him by his father, you know, sitting on the side of this mountain. And I don't meet him. We don't meet him the first night because we got in late. We go in and we, you know, we go to this apartment in the back of the house, which was four times bigger than my house here in the States, this little apartment, um, little. And uh, the next morning we get up, we have a beautiful breakfast. We have a chef and our own chef in our kitchen, our own kitchen taking care of us. We walk in and and we're in the room with Rico, who is the boss's right hand man, as far as we could tell. And in in from the front door comes this Cuban guy, this Colombian dude. He's maybe five foot three, black hair, jet black hair, you know, pulled back in a ponytail, just like you'd expect. He had on a t shirt, he had camouflage fatigues, a gun belt, a a sidearm with a, a gun belt with a sidearm, and combat boots. But the t-shirt he was wearing on the front had a big smiley face and it said underneath it had have a nice day.
0: So he walked <laughs>
1: past me to get a to get a cup of tea. And on the back of the shirt was that same smiley face with a smoking bullet hole in its head, and it said, or else.
0: <laughs> 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 you know,
1: so that kind of gave away a little bit of this guy's. I mean, this guy's a billionaire. He's ahead of his own little deal here, you know, and he's got a sense of humor. And he says, introducing and talking, blah, blah, blah. Let's go see what you're here to see. We go off into the jungle and we take care of business and, and I walk, you know, I get in this Bronco and we're driving and then as soon as his buddy Rico opened the car door, the truck, you know, the Bronco door, this smell of burlap and green hit me. I mean, it smacked me in the face. And it's, I mean, if they could make a cologne out of that stuff, I'd be I'd be their best customer. You
0: know, <laughs> I absolutely <laughs>
1: love that smell. It takes me back. So long story again. You know, I go through these. These it looked like an Incan ruin. These things, bales of wheat of green, were stacked so high and so wide they almost looked like an Incan ruin. And I'm going down through there with his six-foot pole, bamboo pole with a piece of pipe on the end of it, poking them and taking out some intestine. In it. How many of those you got? So he kicked down 100, 200, 300. The guys are weighing them as we're kicking them down. I'm spraying a particular mark on them so I know the stuff that I'm getting, I'm coming to get is what what I got marked.
0: When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free, natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters, to free from baking ingredients, to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Look what's in this gem. It's the vegan power mix from Koro. So we have a mixture of nut canals, dried fruit, cacao nibs, soy crispies and hemp seed hold. Ooh. What are these little red ones? Look at this, man. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. That's good. Fresh and healthy. So, what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro's quality management team carefully and regularly reviews the quality of their products. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between TRUE and CRIME. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor
1: so we get back to the house we're cleaned up and we go to have dinner and we're sitting in this big grand room waiting on dinner and all having cocktails and the room was full of women women and you know just all kind of people and they're you know they're drinking and there's there's bowls of you know the white laying around and and um everybody's having a party and having a good time. And I'm talking with the boss in the, in, the, in the chair next to me and he's lounging back with the cocktail and translating back and forth. And out of nowhere comes this guy I had not seen that day. And he goes up and he whispers something into the boss's ear. And I'm watching this guy's face intently, the boss's, and it went just ashen like this. And I, I right away I knew what the hell, man. I, I knew something was wrong. And he puts his cocktail down and he you know, like this, and he gets up out of his chair and he starts to, you know, walking out of the room. And I see him, I turn and I look and I see him going down the hallway toward the kitchen. Now he's fast walking. I get up and I'm following this guy. <laughs> you know, he's leaving, I'm leaving, right? So he goes through the kitchen, through these doors, out on the veranda, down the steps and across the lawn and all of the the compound lights are facing, you know, inward from, from the forest. And he runs into the forest about 20 feet, and he dives down under, and and he's he's hiding. And I'm right on his heels, and I must have went 20 feet past him, and I dove into the bushes like a a swimmer off starting blocks, right? And I land, and I'm sitting there, you know, waiting for all hell to break loose because I don't have a clue. This guy runs out of the house, his own house, something's gone wrong. And I wasn't there, it seemed like an hour, but it wasn't there, maybe 30 seconds, and I hear this Spanish voice out of the back of the back of the house, hello, like this, and then, all of a sudden this guy starts laughing. And now I'm getting pissed. And I see his silhouette going through the yard, and he's kind of, you know, cleaning himself off. He goes into the house, and I'm thinking, what's going on, man? Now I'm starting to get aggravated. Like, what, You know, what? I get back into the house and finally I'm sweating profusely. He's sitting in his chair. He's already got a drink and he sits down with a big smile on his face. And the people around him are kind of of giggling. And he looks over and he drew a translator. He says to me, where in the hell did you think you were going? (laughs) I I looked him right straight back in the eyes. And I said, dude, when the big man gets up and runs out of the house, My ass is following
0: him. (laughs) And that was a big
1: joke. They all started laughing. But come to find out that what the guy whispered in his ear was that, you know, prior to us getting there and doing any business, he would send his wife and his kids to the in-laws until we left. So no business was done in front of the family. So somehow or other, he had gotten word because, you know, there's this little bit of a switchback to get to this palace built on the side of this mountain. And he's got spotters up and down the road. Well, somehow word got back that his wife was on the way up the mountain. She's, she's coming home. And the last thing he wanted to be was in a house full of, you know, beautiful women and a party going on. So he ducked out the back door and leaves Rico in charge of the party so he can take all the crap for it, you know. And now I'm thinking to myself, here's this guy. He's a billionaire. He's the head of his own little, you know, cartel, if that's what you wish to call it, which it really wasn't. And he turns into the biggest pee whipped person on earth when it comes to his <laughs> work. And
0: I said, "Ah, oh, that's enough of this
1: crap." The next morning, we get I get on the jet, you know, and it's another five hours back home, and I fly home. And it it had become a thing, you know. I didn't, I wasn't going off quite as often, you know, as we got going, but the load went off without a hitch, you know. I made I made them money. Everybody made money. And um now it was go back and you know I'm flying maybe twice a month or three times a month and I'm buying anywhere from you know a hundred thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand pounds of green at any one time and sending the boats one after the other to get it and bring it to us. And you know, there was you know, there was a point in time we're just out just offshore out here in the Gulf. I mean there were times where it looked like a parking lot out there there were so many boats waiting to be unloaded <laughs> it was just crazy but that was my first
0: experience in colombia with the boss but we wound up being really dear friends you know we got a, we got about you a fantastic storyteller too we got we only got about 15 minutes left so we're going okay, to have to okay well around what do you round, want to know round, round up with how the shit hits the fan and, and what happens from there
1: Okay, yeah. Well, you know what? We we're working really hard, like I said, you know, and everybody's enjoying and having fun. And I didn't just work at Everglades crew. There's, you know, 50, 60 people, you know, 200 people, half the town of Everglades willing to work. There was also a crew on, on you know, to the north of us, a little island called Goodland. There was a crew on Marco Island, which is just north. And in the city of Naples, there was a crew. And just north of them on a, a little island called Pine Island, there was a Pine Island crew. So, we're talking 50 plus people on each crew, and each crew is working, you know. So, I had set up a load, skipping forward again, I had set up a load of about 57,000 pounds of green to come into uh, Boca Pass, Boca, um, Boca Grand Pass, which is up by an island called Pine Island, like I mentioned. My Everglades City crew was going to get half and the Pine Island crew was going to take half and I was going to split the load like this, you know, a little bit of subterfuge, confusionist kind of a thing going on. I knew the Everglades City crew knew exactly what they were doing. So I went up to work with the Pine Island crew because I didn't really know them that well. I knew that, you know, I'd worked with them before and some of my guys had, but I wanted to be there while this was going on. So the job gets started and the boats start coming in and I've got a, Box truck backed up into the woods, out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this—we were at—we're we up in the back of BFE, man. I mean, there's nobody out there. And this little beat-up old grown-over road went to this dock that was falling apart. That they backed the truck up next to. You. And only these Pine Island guys know where this thing is at. You know, I mean, I don't even know where I am. But the boats are coming in, and we're throwing these, you know, these these bales of green in the truck, and we get about maybe a hundred or so of them in there, and, and the boats stop coming. And the chatter on the radio stops and a couple minutes later the guy out that i got spotting on the road out there you know for us at the at the entrance he says timmy gets on the radio says timmy a car just pulled up in here man and it stopped and it backed out and went back down the other road down the way and i'm thinking that's not right man because nobody knows we're out here i mean who the hell so you know the hair standing up on the back of my neck and i go walking out there just to see, you know, and he starts till my guy starts telling me again. He said, Yeah, man, that guy just pulled up in here. Well, I look behind me, and everybody that was back there at the dock and at that truck was now standing behind me because they knew the shit wasn't right. Nobody's on the radio, the boats aren't coming. Car pulled up in here, and just as soon as we all get together, we're looking around at one another, you could hear it sounded like 25 cars coming down the road all at once, this tire sounds. And if you ran where we were standing, if you ran that direction, there was a palmetto field of about five, six acres and palmettos are are a tiny, you know, palm bush that doesn't grow any higher than maybe about four feet. And if you run the other direction, there's a pine forest that you could just breeze your way and run right through. Well, it happened so quickly everybody but myself and this colombian guy that came on board as an illegal because that happens a lot of times guys will hit a right on the boat and they'll just come in and disappear well like a dumb but like a dumb butt, i run the way the palm, you know the palmettos are and everybody runs toward the trees the other way and i didn't get 10 steps in and here's the lights of the car and i see that first car and i ducked down and all of a sudden that gate pull right in there and they're getting out of the cars and there's some running over there. Or there's some guys running over there. I can hear all this going on. You know, I'm, I'm less than 20 feet away from where the first car pulled in and I can see under the bushes, their feet, this guy's feet when you get out of this Bronco. So, you know, and it's like five in the morning and we're verging on dawn. I mean, it's not going to be much longer. The sun's going to come up and man, my ass is right there and. When the door opened up on this Bronco, this and I heard the guys. Eh, I can still hear this Colombian guy. He ran the same way I did. Only he kept running, and I to crunch, crunch, crunching through all these dry branches. And I'm thinking, dude, stop running because if they start running after me, man, they're gonna trip over after you. They're gonna trip over me before they even get to you. And and he stopped. God help me. Thank God, somehow or other, he just stopped, or we couldn't hear him any longer. And I sat there and listened to the whole show and watched these guys' feet. Well, the guy in the Bronco decides he's going to go down the street and look, and then so he takes off. And I'm sitting here trying to decide, how in the hell am I going to get out of here without any of these guys seeing me? Because they're all right around us. Well, here comes the Bronco back, and it pulls in, and I can see his feet. When the door opens, the interior light comes on, and I see his feet. He shuts the door and I hear another car pull up out in the street out in front of me, which is about maybe 15, 20 yards, you know, to my forward. And I hear a voice, I heard a car door open and the voice goes, what are you doing? Where are you going? And the guy in the Bronco says, well, I'm going to walk back up in there, you know, and see what we got. And the guy says, well, hang on a minute. I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, bingo. (laughs) They both go walking back off into the woods, but the car on the street was still running. And I didn't know, you know, if I looked, I mean, it's light enough now, but dude, I've I i got to go, I gotta make a move. And if I look over these bushes and there's somebody in that car and they see me, one of two things is gonna oh, either go lost your own, you know, you go. with a gun in my face, or I'm gonna have to knock this guy out and keep running. Well, I looked up over the bushes. There was nobody in the car. <laughs> I took off like a jackrabbit, man. I went through the tr- across the road, through the ditch and into the bushes. And I ran till I couldn't breathe, man. I mean, I don't know how far I ran. I dove under a pile of weeds and sticks and branches and covered myself up and laid there. And once I got my breath, I'm here in the helicopters and I'm, you know, now it's daylight. I'm hearing all this goings on in the helicopter, and I hear him pulling my box van, banging it through the trees, trying to pull it out of the woods, right? I lay there all day long and listen to this going on. Well, at some point during that, that afternoon, I kind of, you know, I've got weeds and crap up. Just my eyes are showing. And, you know, I, I woke up because I heard, a, you know, branches cracking and snapping and leaves crunching. And I opened my eyes up, and I looked, I looked over like this, and there's a, a bobcat. Had it been eighty pounds, if it was a pound, about an arm's length away from me, just making slow steps like this, because it saw my arm, you know, my movement, it was curious and it was taking another. It was crouched down, and and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, I just spent the night getting away from the law, and I got out of all that shit, and I'm only to get eaten by this damn thing, <laughs> you know. And I said, that's not happening. And I just, I don't know, I just, I had had enough, and I just went. And I threw leaves and everything in the air and screamed like that. Well, this thing did a jump in the air, did about three flips and took off to the bushes <laughs> like it was shot out of a cannon because I scared the piss out of it. <laughs> right. And I just later on that night I made my way in, you know, out of the woods and up next to the road. And I stayed off the road. And about four miles down the road was a fish house. So like here I am at like two thirty in the morning and this fish house is open. The lights are on. Lights are on in the parking lot this is before cell phones. There's a, there's a phone in the parking lot and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to go up to this phone in this brightly lit parking lot and be the only one out there and not draw any attention to myself? I'm trying you know, this is not going to work. Well, while I'm thinking this through two shrimp boats pulled in and unloaded, unload their catch and the crews go up and line up at that phone booth to call for their rides home. Well, I just kind of, sauntered on down there and got in line with the rest of the crew <laughs> when it came time to you know my time on the phone i would just opened the phone book up and first thing i saw under their taxi i pointed to it and dialed it you know and i calmed this guy into somehow coming and getting me from you know he was 25 miles away from me he wasn't even close i said i will give you 600 dollars cash to show up and i'll give you your fare and whatever else you want just get you know come and get me i've been fishing for days i need to go home i want to go to port of Gordon, just drop me off he says, okay, but you better. I mean, this better be true. He pulled it. And while I'm talking to him, the sheriff's squad car, sheriff's deputy car, pulls into the parking lot and it circles all the way around me. And it goes out at another entrance over here and it goes back down the road. I said, dude, just get here, man. I hung the phone up. And 40 minutes later, here he comes. I threw $600 in his lap, climbed in the back seat, and slumped down like this. And I said, take me to a motel in Punicora.
0: <laughs> That's how I got
1: away. I mean that night but then it wasn't long after that come the investigation and all the you know you know the questioning and stuff like that you know and uh uh, grand jury indictment you know coming to the you know uh appearance to the grand jury which i took the fifth on so they excused me which only told me that they didn't really need me they had plenty you know and ultimately what wound up happening was i was given uh four indictments and from the time From uh, September 1st, 1987, the United States government changed the federal sentencing guidelines across the board to mandatory minimums, and we didn't know this. A year prior, our uncles and dads and grandpas and everybody—they're getting a year and a half. They're getting like like 36 months, like the Daniels boys, you know. And just you know, almost a slap on the wrist. Now you get one indictment. There's four counts on each indictment. There's a mandatory 10 years to life on each count and a million dollar fine. If you got one indictment that's a mandatory 40 years to life they can give you and, and four million dollars in fines. Well, I had four of these indictments, so they added up to 160 years mandatory to life and 16 million dollars in fines. And what, that's what they what, got
0: arranged for. for well what, you know, what went what went through your head when you realized you were facing 160 years?
1: Well, you know what to ask to be honest with you um john it never really i could never really wrap my mind around life in prison life sentence it just didn't register it was like it was an unreal thing to me um it was obviously scary because these people met business you know and quite frankly you know and i really understood you know how the seriousness of this was when um, the only cooperation that I could offer them, and, and that's what it took to get out from under all of this, was cooperation. And I wrote this in my book that everybody that had ever hauled a bale of pot in southwest Florida somehow or other was named and was indicted. And what wound up happening was that they started realizing that they are getting all kids now. There's no adults, or very few, because the last two go rounds um, Life Magazine wrote a 18-page centerfold unprecedented article in 1984. It came out about a small southwest Florida town tarred with drug smuggling, and most of its 600 residents said, so what? But that meant also within the article that it was a small town in southwest Florida that was mostly women and young children and young men because the entire male population is going to prison,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, so... I had no recourse but to cooperate by way of, you know, I said, look, I can't cooperate but give you names and stuff like that because even though the violence didn't exist, you throw one of these Cuban guys or these Colombians under the bus and they're gonna come back at you and do exactly what they're very good at. And that's take out your family, you, do, you know, the dog and the cat and your cousins and everybody, you know, just to prove a point. So cooperation was not in the cards for me, but what I was able to do with them and they, what they wanted to know, these two treasury agents that finally cornered me, you know, in, a, in, a, in an interview, they wanted to know how I was able to do this for, for all this time, a decade, and they couldn't catch me. And I said, well, I can tell you dumbasses that. You know, I mean, game's <laughs> over. You know, I'm not going to give you any names. I'll tell you how it all works. And you can glean anything from whatever the facts that I give you, then, you know, more power to you, but you're not going to get a name. So I started imparting to them how it worked like I did with you, you know, and the sheer volume and the sheer amounts of money. We had a money house that I would get paid in on Miami and kill Coral Gables at any one time had two to $300 million in cash. And I would have been there for days sometimes, two and three days counting millions of dollars with six money machines going and it. it, would still take that long. We ultimately had to start weighing it. Because I should be in Columbia or I should be working on a load, but I'm still counting money because now the jobs are starting to back up and, and I'm getting paid. Now my paydays are $30 million, $40 million, $50 because million, the jobs are backing up. And the reason that happens is because I don't get paid immediately. If I bring 30,000 pounds in and you owe me $15 million, I take all of it and give it to you except for $15 million of it I keep. You lose your crap in Miami, I'm going to sell ours and get paid. You give me my money, I give you your stuff back. That's just how it worked. You know, so it was always, you know, we always have that safety valve involved in it. So I'm imparting these, you know, scenarios to them and they obviously didn't believe me because, you know, for a month they've been taking me to this room and questioning me and one day they take me to another room and it's got this one guy in it with a polygraph machine. And, you know, he started asking me these questions, and I turned around, I walked out of there with a big grin on my face, and I looked back at these other investigators okay, from the okay. U.S. Attorney's Office and, you know, and, and, um, and the local sheriff's department and all those other agencies, and they're all scratching their head going, holy crap, you was not lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tim,
0: Tim, i got to stop you. We've run out of time. We've got another that's guest about to come in. That, that's fine, you, man. It's just, just the pace at which you tell it, it's so gripping. Everyone in the chat has been a... You're on fire brother can you just tell the viewers where they can find out about you and get your book and that kind of stuff
1: yes absolutely um i'm sure if you go online you know to there are a lot of uh different places and and bookstores probably in the uk probably in london area that will that will order your book you know from saint martin's press or from mcmillan's press but um i'm also on instagram at original saltwater cowboy Um, You can Google my name, Tim McBride uh, slash Everglades, and every uh, show that I've been on, every newspaper, every article, everything that you want to know about me is online there. But uh, if you can, I urge you to, you know, to buy the book, you know, because this is history of that industry in America. And it's literally the story of how it began with the first generation and how it ended with the third generation, which was me and our crew. That ended Caribbean green from coming into this country, quite literally, that's the significance of what it was we were doing. We obviously weren't the only ones doing it, and I never say that we were, we were only able to tell, I was able to tell a story about a small town that was able to integrate it into a way of life, spanning three generations and and running the Caribbean with impunity. So original Saltwater Cowboy on Instagram, Tim McBride, Saltwater Cowboy on, on Facebook, and google me like i said you'll find everything you need to know about me on online
0: all right thanks bro but for telling your story so well really
1: remind appreciate me it, sean man. you got you got this much of a story that's this big
0: <laughs> yeah there's there's lots but more i sure talk. thank
1: you for your time and i love my uk friends they're awesome i got a picture of my book that a very very wonderful woman took when she was at stonehenge with my book with stonehenge in the back which is so cool i just <laughs> love it
0: All right. Thank you, Tim. We'll see you again. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Yes, sir. I'd love to come back, Sean. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers.